Terry fessed up that he and I were in the parking lot at 6 on Sunday. I was going to make a big story up. That last Sunday, actually because we're preaching Revelation right now, last Sunday was actually a rapture simulator. Um, that some of you people who showed up, you know, at 9 a.m., that's how to feel. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's a joke. I'm not in trouble, am I? That's a joke, right? I will say this, though. When, when you commit to the, when you kind of commit and ally yourself with God, one of the things that comes along with it is this uh, belief that nothing happens by accident. There really are no coincidences. At least I think that they feel pretty close to one another. That's how I think. So it was hard for Terry and I because we were sitting in the parking lot at 6, and, I mean, the, the, the transformer that got taken out by the wind was the one connected to our church. I mean, it was, we were the only data point on the street, practically, it felt like. So you're sitting there going, nothing happens by accident. Like, what do I do with this? Uh, and I don't, I don't know what to do with it. You get humbler, if that's a word. Um, we kind of seek out. Uh, you know, I continue to kind of wonder. But I, I will say, this is some of the things as I've kind of searched my own heart and, and tried to understand better. These are some things I've learned about uh, some things I've learned over the past week or so. One is, when you're, when you're preaching through Revelation, and, you're, and last week we were reading through the churches, right? And all these churches were getting, a lot of these churches had severe persecution, and yet they were rising above it, and they were achieving, and then we lost our power and had to cancel. That felt wimpy. Uh, and, you know, there was a little bit of that, kind of like wimpy shame on, here we're reading these churches that are enduring the great persecutions of the Roman Empire in some cases, and we lose two of our three phases on the Transformer, and we're out. And, you know, so there was a while where I kind of went in a slump, and and then I thought, you know, there's a lot of things in life that the opening shock of difficulty will put us back, but adapting a life to that kind of difficulty can be very easily done. If you, you know, when you have a child, you give birth to the, the, some, the wife gives birth to the first child. I don't do it, but she did. She gives birth to the child. You're not typically in church the next Sunday because of all of the, the way your life has been turned upside down. But it isn't like you don't figure out how to come back to church. Eventually, that hardship or blessing or child <laughs> becomes knit back into the life of the family in a way that, that you can now bring church and different things back in. And so I, it did cause me to think about things, how we think about difficulty, that sometimes the moment it happens, it feels really hard. But maybe over time, the Lord would say, adapt. Anyway, it's good to have you back. Oh, one other thing that I was thinking about is also all of this, this wonderful stuff. So many people worked on this leading up to last Sunday. They were within about an hour and a half of the final sound check when the power went out. I mean, they had stayed here. Till, some of the people stayed till 2 a.m. Sunday morning or Saturday morning. And they, so many people. In fact, I got a, a few people, James Coleman, Mike Ingram, uh, Wayne, Logan, Terry, uh, there's a gentleman, Jason, who's not even in our church, who put in major hours. So many of you, I'm missing names, thank you. But they had put all of this labor into all of this, and there we are, at 6 o'clock Sunday morning, and none of it's worth anything. And we did feel the Lord reminded us that this is the church, not this. And 
Let's not confuse the two. Well, good. It's good to be back. I have in my hand a, uh, what's called a checklist. This is the checklist, the Dash 1 checklist for the airplane I used to fly. Is it right there? And this has all sorts of stuff that I'm supposed to know and I've forgotten. But uh, one of the things we would use this for is for what we would call a walk-around. Now, all through just about any category of aviation, if you're going to go fly an airplane, you will walk around it first. Walk around. So you'll step to the airplane, and pretty much no matter how big or small the airplane is, some, something like this happens. You go around and you pre-flight the external exterior of the aircraft, make sure all the pins are pulled, the flags are removed, there's no bird nests in the intakes, all of those sorts of things that kind of can make your day sour, you try to deal with before you climb in the airplane. And we call that the walk-around. Now, as you can see, this is just the right forward section of the exterior thing, part of the airplane. And so there's like 80 or 100 of these little things that you're supposed to kind of check off as you go around the airplane. Now, when you're a young pilot, they teach you to walk around with this thing open and kind of, you know, you, like you're a monkey. You read a step, you do a step, you eat a banana. You read a step, you do a step, you eat a banana. That's just, they want it to become very second nature because they know that you don't know what you're supposed to look for. So they're very heavy on the checklist, you know, as you start to get all salty and good. You kind of just toss this in your bag and get going until something goes wrong. Um, but what the checklist does not teach you is the most important step of all, which is after your walk around, you step back from the airplane and you look at it, you just kind of look at the whole thing. And you're just looking to see if it looks about right. Now, this sounds small. This is, this is the most important step. Because invariably what's happened during your, during your walk around, during your one of 80 steps, is somebody, your crew chief says to you, so how about that Eagles game? You're like, yeah. You do that, and next thing you know, you miss this massively long orange flag that says, remove before flight. And you go on your merry way. And you don't know that until you kind of step away and look back, and you realize there's a flag hanging. Or, you know, my airplane had munitions on it. And so it's important at times to know that the bombs are where the bombs are supposed to be. And the missiles are where the missiles are supposed to be. And the rockets are where the rockets... There have been times when people have pushed the button expecting something to go that way, and it went that way. Which they could have ironed out had they stepped back. I once had a friend of mine who was... We have a targeting pot on the airplane, millions of dollars. the high-tech piece of equipment. And he was running all his checklists in the air because he couldn't get his targeting pod to activate. He couldn't get his targeting pod. So I, you know, come up close to him, and it sits on station nine, and I said, two, check station nine, and he looked over, and there's no targeting pod on his airplane. But he just didn't, he didn't even notice this eight-foot-long piece of million-dollar equipment because you don't step back and look at the whole thing. Well, Revelation is like this. Revelation is a connection of images. The whole book of Revelation is one image after another image. You might think of it as a moving picture or a slideshow. You see something, if, if you count the and then I saws in Revelation, you'll run out of fingers and toes. It's one image, and then it's another image, and then it's another image, and it's another image. And each one of these images has all these little details connected to the image that intimidate us out of the book of Revelation 
all the time. Right? It's the details that intimidate us out of the book. And so we look at each image and we have you know, these, all these details and our tendency, the temptation is, is that we, we kind of become fixated on knowing all of the details rather than kind of looking at the details, trying to understand the details, but stepping back and saying, what is the whole image saying? And there's a lot of times, I want to I comfort you, if you're reading this for the first time, that you, if, if you get the 80% picture, you're doing all right. The big picture is where the big meaning is. And so today, we, we're coming across our first vision in Revelation. And what I want to do is we're going to kind of walk through it. We're trying to build skills, a skill set, for as we continue to go through the book, on how to kind of look at visions. But we're going we're gonna to walk around Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to be described. We're going to give him a walk around. Look at things, and then we're going to step back, and we're going to say, now how are we supposed to understand the big meaning of this image? There's a guy, his name is Caird, C-A-I-R-D. I have never read any, any book of his. I don't even know who he is. I saw him quoted in a book, and it was such a beautiful quote that I have to give him credit for. He cautioned us when reading Revelation against unweaving the rainbow is how he described it, as becoming so fixated on the little things that you destroy the whole image. We don't want to do that. We want to be able to constantly be able to step back and see God's painting a rainbow. Revelation is a book you experience. You don't learn it. You experience it. So with that said, you open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, and we're going to try to interpret the big picture. If you're using one of our Bibles, and if you're new to Scripture, I'm proud for you. Thank you for opening the Word yourself. It's in the late 800s. It's at the back of the Bible. Okay. We're going to read verses 9 to 20. And we're going to look at the details briefly. We're going to blow through the details like we're late for our flight. And then we're going to step back. Starting with verse 9, this is what it says. I, John, your brother and companion in suffering and kingdom and patient endurance, that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the image that Jesus has given to the churches. So this image kind of propels us through chapter 2 and chapter 3. That you know, When you read about the churches in the previous week, this is the image of Christ that's supposed to kind of connect to what's being said there. And what I'd like to do is step very quickly through the details and then, and then step back here. So let's look. Let's look at, 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 the, uh, at the details. Starting roughly in verse 12, it says that John, he, that he turned to see the voice that was speaking. And when he turned, what's the first thing he sees? Is it Jesus? No. It is a lampstand. Which, whether that's the first thing he sees or whether it's the first thing John describes, it, 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 it denotes the importance of the environment in which we're seeing Jesus. John turns to see what? He, he turns to see uh, some field, you know, not like a grass field, but some area full of lampstands. And the lampstands are the churches. And so however we're going to understand Jesus, it's in relationship to the churches. Not just a church, the churches, the sevenfold churches. Certainly these seven, but also the broad idea of the church universal. Jesus is understood as being among them. That's, that's what he says. He says he sees these lampstands, and then he sees someone who is among them them. I'll add a tiny detail to this. If you notice the church is a lampstand, it's not a lamp. It holds light, which uh, is humbling. We are not ourselves light. We hold the light that Christ gives us. That's the first thing we see. Here's the second thing. It says this, among the lampstands, among, just that that whole image is beautiful. Among the lampstands, he sees someone, and then there's, you see quotation marks? Like a son of man. Like a son of man. What John's doing here, he's actually hearkening back to Daniel 7. He's hearkening back to an Old Testament apocalyptic book that would describe kind of the personhood of Jesus in, in a very apocalyptic way. And, he's, and John is essentially saying, I saw someone just like the someone that Daniel saw a long, long time ago. That's what he's saying. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's the idea he's trying to convey is, is who I saw. In fact, in Daniel 10, there is a figure, some angelic kind of figure, who has almost precisely the same description as this. And John's kind of saying, I saw the Son of Man that Daniel was talking about. Which brings to mind this idea that whoever it is we're seeing, this is not a new figure. This is an Old Testament figure. This is a figure that is ancient of days, that precedes kind of the New Testament flow, that this figure is the God figure of Daniel that is still here in Revelation. That's what's being expressed here with someone like a son of man. 
The next thing we see, the next detail that comes is that this someone, this son of man, is dressed in a robe that extends down to his feet and he's wearing a sash. This, this attire is very much like the attire of a priest in the temple. If you read the end of Exodus, this is how their dress is, is described. In other words, whoever this someone is, he is symbolically playing the role of a priest. He's among the churches playing the role of the priest. And the role of the priest is to mediate between mankind and God. That's the role of the priest. The role of the priest is to bring man closer to God and to be a conduit so that God might meet with man. Whoever this is, this is what he's symbolically doing. He's among his church uniting mankind to God. He's a bridge. And then we have this statement about his head and his eyes. 14. His head and hair were like wool, white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. I've described it this way. That Jesus is pure and he's purifying. That he's white like snow in the sense that he's pure, without sin. There's no evidence of sin in him anywhere. He's perfectly sinless. But his eyes are like fire in the sense that that when he looks at you, he purifies you. You've been there. Where it, it, it is comforting to try to live a Christian life where we acknowledge that Jesus is pure, but avoid his stare. But Jesus is not satisfied with that. He is pure, but he is also purifying. He looks into you, and he says, and we've been there, right? We've been there where we felt the Lord say, I know who you are. I know who you are more than you know who you are. I'm, we deal with sin on such a shallow level. We don't want to do that. And the Lord always is looking deeper going, it's not about you doing that. It's about who you think you are that needs to do that. All through the letters to the churches in chapter 2 and 3, what do you hear? You hear Jesus say this, to the faithful and the unfaithful church alike, I know your deeds. I see them. Jesus is pure, and he's purifying. And then we get to this description of his feet. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. What does that mean? Well, if you go back to Daniel, or other apocalyptic literature, you'll see this. I'm going to just describe it in very generic terms. You'll see at times a vision that comes to someone like Daniel of a great and mighty terrible statue. And the statue in the vision is the empires of the world or the force of darkness or whatever you, or, you know, that kind of thing. And, and in this vision that Daniel has, the, the statue is resplendent and mighty and intimidating from the head. It's golden head and bronze chest and iron torso. You get this feeling like it's unstoppable. That's how the vision's unfolding itself in the text is, Who can come up against this mighty empire or this chain of empires or the rule of the world against God? That's what Daniel sees in the vision. And you see his eyes scrolling down the vision. And when he gets to the feet, you know what he sees? Feet of clay or clay mixed with iron. And the the idea is this, this colossal behemoth that comes against the Lord is brittle at its very base. It's about to fall over. 
that the smallest strike against the heel of this mighty statue will send it crashing. And we've seen this. Who cannot watch the news about North Africa and see how clay-footed the nations of the earth are? We have clay feet. All the things that we're distracted to worship are clay-footed. They look beautiful up top. They, they catch our gaze. But at the very foundation, the very thing that holds them up is so prone and so brittle and so, so susceptible to fall apart. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. Jesus is most impressive at his base, at his foundation. Bronze is an alloy. Bronze is an alloy of copper, which has the great nature of the fact that it does not rust, but it has the, the weakness of the fact that it's very pliable and soft. You take copper and you mix it with iron, which has the very strong nature of its strength, but it rusts. When you alloy the two together, you get bronze, which neither rusts nor is weak. That is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is one that is eternal and invincible. It's impregnable. That's what's being described here as Jesus walks among the churches. He's describing himself as one who is imperishable and impregnable as he mediates for us and dwells among us and purifies us with his purity. His voice is like rushing water. He's, the voice of Christ is loud, it's powerful, it's engulfing, it's overwhelming, it's dangerous. He holds in his hands the seven stars, which are the seven angels of the seven churches. Now, this is one of those places where I'm going to loosen my belt and say the big picture is more important than the details. This is one of those perfect places in the Bible to say, I don't know exactly what that is, but I'm not going to stop moving because I don't know exactly what that is. I'll say it's probably something like this, that in the hand of Christ, he holds the spirit of the church. That he can at his very, in his hand he knows how we are. The collective faithfulness of this community. The the way that, that when this church speaks to God, Jesus knows how it sounds. That the message from our church to him and from him to our church is in his very hand. Out of his mouth comes a sharp, double edged sword. the power of truth, that Christ fights with truth. He's not armed with armies. He's armed with the word, that the truth of God slays. Have you ever noticed when you read the Gospels, the power of the word of Jesus, when he opens his mouth, how real things happen? There's this demon in a person. He says, come out. The demon screeches. He says, be quiet. There's people around. He says, your sins are forgiven. And they they balk. And he turns to them and says, You tell me which is greater to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk. But that you might know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, I say, get up, take up your mat, and walk. This word, which became flesh, was in the beginning. And in the beginning, the word said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. Creation obeys the word of God. This is what's coming out of the mouth of Jesus And then finally, he's described this way, that his face is dazzling. It's brilliant. I love this image of Jesus amidst and among all these lampstands, this one million candlewatt power Jesus in the middle of all these lampstands. It makes us look pretty unnecessary. 
Okay, that's the walk around. Now let's step back. Okay? Let's step back and let's look at the whole thing. The whole person. Now, I'm going to ask you a question because we might have to step back a little farther. When you step back to see the whole person, are you seeing in your mind's eye someone in a robe with a sword coming out of their mouth? Because if you are, we need to step back farther. This is... In other words, you, you, you have not backed away from the details if that's what you're seeing. Do you see, we just unpacked the symbology. We just said the bronze feet are this. And we just said this is what it symbolizes. The stars symbolize this. The robe symbolizes this. But when we step back, if we still just see the vision drawn in our mind's eye, we have not seen what Jesus wants us to see. Jesus is not describing what he looks like. He's describing who he is like. Who he is. Let me, let me explain. In other words, what's being, the sword coming out of his mouth and all of these things happening are depicting things that are in and of themselves non-depictable. I'll give you a test. You got your pencils, especially you note takers. We're running late, so you got 15 seconds to draw what omniscience looks like. Okay, you got that one wrong. (laughs) Draw for me what divine mediation looks like. Draw me divine mediation. Draw for me eternal, invincible, all-knowing, all-powerful. How do you draw something that extends deeper than the mind's eye? The mind's eye is a berry. You have to shut your mind's eye to the symbology. Once you unwrap it, once it has a meaning, you have to take that meaning and put it farther back into the spirit and say, this is not, Jesus is not saying, I walk around with a sword coming out of my mouth. He's saying that you, among the lampstands, dwells one who at his very word judges rightly and effectively unto life and death. Jesus is saying, when I open my mouth, truth cuts the earth in two. That's what he's saying. In other words, we should not be standing back saying we see a bronze-footed, star-handed, white-headed figure. We should be stepped back and say we see one like the Son of Man among the churches who is pure and purifying and who is invincible and eternal and holds us in his right hand and speaks truth that divines all things from one to the other. That's what we should be seeing. Do you see see, there's there's a deeper need to step farther back and this is, this is something we will need to do again and again and again in the book of Revelation. You have not gone far enough if you just step back to see what does it look like. You have to step back and say, who is he like? Right. In other words, the image in some way, odd way is immaterial at times. This is, by the way, if you read Revelation, it's like he has a costume changing room. Jesus looks this way one second. Next thing you know, he's a lamb. Next thing you know, he's on a horse. It's like, what's going on here? It's because all the time he's trying to teach you about who he is, not what he looks like. I'm not sure, by the way, I'm not sure I ever see what Jesus or God looks like in the entire book of Revelation. I, I struggle with that. I struggle to find him. I know a lot about him. 
I want to say that this is a more comprehensive, this idea is a more comprehensive view of who Jesus Christ is than we normally dwell with in, in kind of our gospel storyline. Now, I'm not denying the truth of our gospel storyline. I'm saying what we see in part in the gospels is depicted here symbolically and its fullness. And what's strange is, is that the Jesus that you know and that I know and that we know typically conforms himself to a flannel board children's Sunday school kind of image. Have you ever noticed? I, I, why does the church stop drawing Jesus when it grows up? I don't quite know that. I know there's been battles over this. I, I can look back and see the history in the battlefield, but I'm not quite sure why we have no qualms drawing the feeding of the 5,000 until people are 10. And then from that point on, all we do is talk about it. But what's happened is, is that the church, by and large, most adult brains have a very flannelboard Crayola picture of Jesus, which is in part who he is, not in full. The church day-to-day is operating on a partial view of who Jesus is. This is, this is the passage. We have so much familiar artwork. If you Google paintings on Jesus, this is what you'll find. You'll find pictures of Jesus with children. You'll find pictures with Jesus as a shepherd. You'll find pictures with Jesus in the nativity. You'll find a picture of Jesus always praying on a rock. You'll find a picture of a Last Supper Jesus or Jesus on a donkey or a woman at the well Jesus or you'll find a boy in the temple. One story. Imagine how much artwork comes from one story. Feeding the 5,000 Jesus. Healing the lepers Jesus. Washing the feet Jesus. This is the 90 percentile. We have also the crucifixion Jesus and the resurrection Jesus because we're required to by Christian law. That we, there, I mean, there are, there are, in the spirit of some churches, some lampstands wrestle with, do we do the crucifixion, Jesus? Because all the other ones, in part, are so comforting and gentle and relatable. They are, in part, who he is. I'm not denying them. In fact, I'm trying to celebrate them by saying there's even more than that. But we worship him in part. Revelation 1.9 says, you need to know him in full, not in part. It's important that the gospel comes out of those images. But there's, the gospel is connected to the fullness of God in a unique way that Jesus Christ wasn't just with us, he is now among us. Jesus Christ didn't simply just heal, he has us in his right hand. Jesus didn't simply argue truth against the teachers of the law. He is, in fact, the sole speaker of truth. Jesus Christ doesn't just overcome on the cross. Jesus Christ overcomes with all the churches who hold faithfully to him. We have this in part Jesus that Revelation says is there is such a fullness that you need to appreciate. It's so full I can only express it symbolically. And this is the Jesus that the church is need to embrace. In every one of these churches, from chapter 2 to 3, what you find is a a church that is in some place of either persecution 
or temptation or peace. There's some kind of... They're flexing between persecution and peace or temptation and peace. That's what you find in every one of these. And by the way, if you look at the introductions to the churches in 2 and 3, what you will very often find is that Jesus introduces the letter to the churches with hearkening back to his description in the first chapter. To the church of Ephesus, he writes in chapter 2, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who dwells among the seven golden lampstands. Thyatira, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. You see how it's going? That, that even when he addresses the church, he's saying, understand me in my fullness. Because the, the fullness of Christ is necessary for us to either be encouraged or convicted by him. In other words, if we are a church that's suffering persecution, what we need to know is the encouragement of one who says, persevere, for I am the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. We need to know that. Likewise, if we're being tempted into sin and we're drifting, right? If, if the light on our lampstand is dimming, we ought need to hear the very same thing. Jesus will say, be advised, be warned, I am the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. It is an encouragement and it's a warning. Persevere, says the one who has the double-edged sword and wields it on your behalf. Or, be warned, I'm coming and I bring with me a double-edged sword. In this, in this reading, uh, I don't know about you, but I found myself, I think it's pretty natural, asking which church are we? Did you ever ask yourself that? So which church are we? And um, I'm tempted... Uh, I, sometimes I'm tempted to kind of feel ashamed, not of our church, but of our setting. Because you look at all these churches that have persevered, like Smyrna and Philadelphia, they've persevered all this persecution. You're like, oh, they're the real McCoy. They're the real church. The church in China, or the church persevering in Pakistan, or Morocco. These churches, they're the, they're the real church. And over here, it's, it's, it's easy. We have to work to find token persecution. We're tax-exempt, for crying out loud. And sometimes I am tempted to say, well, well, you know, that must mean we're a weak church. I don't think we've read it very well. I, I've wrestled with this all the way up to this morning, and I don't think we've read very well if we assume that. It seems to me that Satan and the world attack in two different ways. To some people, he tries to beat the gospel out of them. And to some churches, he tries to coax the gospel out of them. When you read them, read the churches. Some of them have been beat down and crushed and leaned against by Satan so that they might fail. But they are remaining strong. And that's the encouragement. The Lord says, hold on. Because I hold the seven stars in my right hand and because I have bronze feet. But there are some churches, but they're in a setting where nothing's, nothing's pushing against them from the outside like that. But from the inside, they're being tempted away from truth by compromise and by, by allowing things and by permissiveness and letting things go. And that's usually the churches the Lord says, watch out, because I hold the stars in my right hand. You're mine. So when I look here, what I, don't, I see is I do, not see, I do not see the Western church 
as a weak church. I see the Western church as a church that's battling of the same foe using a different strategy, which is he's entered in and he's coaxing us out. Nobody fights Samson face to face. They send in Delilah. Some of you may think this is an, uh, kind of an unfamiliar vision of Jesus, Jesus that you're used to. Maybe you're used to the nativity Jesus. Maybe baby Jesus makes you feel better. Um, I, I want to show you. I'll close, I'll close here. Just trying to show you that the same Jesus that we read of the Gospels is here in this text. It's just there's so much more to be seen. Read with me this verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I find that so encouraging. In fact, if you think of this, this this vision is coming to John. I think it's John the Apostle. He's receiving this vision. When he turns around... Now, John the Apostle was the closest apostle to Jesus, arguably. He was the beloved one. He was the one whom Jesus loved. He's the one whom Jesus gave his mother Mary to at at his crucifixion, who would have known Jesus better than John, right? And in the earlier verse, John says, I turned around and I saw someone like a son of man. I feel that this vision, that John is seeing more than he ever, that Jesus is almost unidentifiably brilliant in this scene. That you would have thought that John would have said, I turned around and I saw Jesus. And I ran to Jesus. And I embraced Jesus. And I said, oh, I've missed you so much, right? That's what the beloved one, what happens instead is that the figure is so unbelievably large that he says, I saw someone as like the Son of Man and I fell as though one dead. And to me, verse 17, especially for John, must be this this tender moment where the same Jesus he ever knew puts his right hand on him and says, don't be afraid. I am he. I am the one who was dead and now living. It's my hope and my prayer that as we experience the book of Revelation, that we might move on from knowing Jesus in part to knowing him in fullness and remembering that it is the same Christ who saves us as the one who continues to encourage us and will one day bring us to him.